You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word, that it is indeed come and it is indeed here. God, we pray that indeed you would make your name even more majestic in all of the earth, in our hearts and in the world around us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We're back, kind of. Uh, Two negative COVID tests later for me, and no symptoms for the rest of us. Uh, we're back here together, some of you. Good to see you all, for the rest of you at home. And I know that a lot of you probably think that I'm like 26 or something, but I'm actually 36. Uh, yeah, so I'm turning 37 at the end of this year, uh, which I think puts me like squarely in my late 30s. Uh, Clint, that means in December you're turning 39, right? One foot in the grave, man. Um, but Marcy and I will be hanging out with many of you uh, at our dinner table or just around, and uh, many of you are already well into your careers or married, and we'll say, so like, what year did you graduate high school? And you'll be like, like 2014, and we're like, okay, um, yeah, we're old. We're now in a place where I remember being like in like my mid-20s, and we were hanging out with a couple in their mid-30s and thinking that they were so old, so wise beyond our years. But that was also the way that I was thinking when I was 15, hanging out with someone who was like 25. And undoubtedly, how you who are in your mid-40s still think about me, so young. But I'm not 15, I'm not 25, and one of the ways that I feel most acutely aware of that is because I just don't know what's cool anymore. Uh, like, today's pop stars can be huge, have tens of millions of followers and enormous influence, and it will be many years until I have actually heard of them. It took me uh, this week listening to a New York Times podcast to actually know and understand who PewDiePie is. Uh, like, we're talking about a guy who, for the past three or four years, may be one of the most influential humans on earth who has over 100 million YouTube followers, and I had just kind of barely heard of him. I definitely didn't know that he was Swedish or his name is Felix Shelberg, but names are actually really important. 
And this happens with people as you meet them. Like, you don't really know them. You might uh, know their name, but you haven't really internalized their name until you actually have a person and a story to go along with that name, to attach them to that person, until you've gotten to know them, until you've had some experience with them. I certainly haven't met PewDiePie, probably never will, uh, and I knew that he had something to do with gaming, but now, having listened to many episodes about his entire story and his meteoric rise to fame, like, I'm not going to forget who this guy is now. Well, Psalm 8 is all about the name of God, what the name of God means for the universe, means for the world, means for you and for me, and that the name of God gets put onto his people, and that together with the triune God, his people will actually rule and reign with him. So, to help us think through this progression of internalizing God's name and then what that means for our lives going forward, we're going to consider Psalm 8 under two headings, the glory of God's name, and then secondly, the glory of God's image. The glory of God's name. If you just opened the book of Psalms and you started with Psalm 1, it may feel a bit disjointed as you read. But if you remember way back to Psalm 1 or Psalm 2 that we were thinking through at the end of February, the beginning of March, all of that was before complete societal lockdown. It feels like years ago that we were looking and thinking through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, but we thought about those two psalms as like the fountainhead for the rest of the psalms. Psalm 1 is like the front door into this Psalter into this psalm book, and then Psalm 2 is like the living room. Psalm 1 looks for the goal, the good rule of God's law, and then Psalm 2 looks for the good ruler, the wise and the blessed man who will actually extend God's kingdom of flourishing life. But then that flourishing life of Psalm 1 and 2 then gets thrown into the desert, the world of raging hostility against the rule of God. In Psalms 3 through 7, as we've thought through them, and if you're just reading, they're just sad. They are psalms of weeping, of languishing, of lament, of exhaustion. Last week in Psalm 6, we thought through sin and repentance and violence and oppression and injustice. Psalm 8, though, finds David still out in the wilderness, perhaps figuratively. We don't have a subtitle uh, on Psalm 8 that tells us that he's out in the wilderness, he's on the run or something like that. But he is very much still in the harsh realities of life in a world of opposition. And then he looks up. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. O Lord, it says in all caps, meaning the word that David uses there is uh, the word Yahweh, the covenant name that God gives uh, himself to Moses, a loose translation that I am and will continue to be what I am and will forever be. So, O Lord, our Lord, as it says in English, is actually O Yahweh, our Lord, O Yahweh, our master, O Yahweh, our ruler, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now let's take it back even further, back from not just Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, but way back to last September when we were going through Exodus and we thought through the third commandment of you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. 
So in beginning to understand that using the Lord's name in vain wasn't just don't ever say OMG or something like that, we thought of the theme of the name of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, almost like a personified stand-in for God's presence on earth, God's name representing not just the identity of God, but his entire reputation, and of God's people not bearing or carrying that name lightly or flippantly in vain. It is serious and cosmic business when people take on God's name upon themselves, take on his very identity. And so in Psalm 8, David is going to reflect on and then worship God for the things that are true, God's name being majestic in all of the earth, but could be even more true. We usually think of this kind of thinking in the category of already, but not yet. Things that are already true, but are not yet comprehensively true. We think of these categories often in the second coming of Christ, but Old Testament saints could also think in these kinds of ways. So, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, O, O Yahweh, our ruler, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, is God's name, is his identity and his reputation majestic in all the earth? Yes, but it could be more. Now, David likely doesn't have like North America or Australia in mind here, like every place, every square inch of the earth that we now know to be here, but the earth as he knows it. And for sure, the earth as he knows it, the, the Hittites and the Amorites and the, even the faraway Egyptians, the powerful Egyptians, they, even they know of the powerful majesty of Yahweh, of God. But how is the majestic reputation an identity of God, now causing the earth to change, to come under his good rule, and to live in peaceful flourishing. It certainly is in some ways, but it could be more. But in fact, all of humanity should know of the power and of the glory of God because he has set his glory, into verse 1, he has set his wonder and his beauty, his, his gravitational heaviness above the heavens, what we in modern frameworks would call like the sky and beyond, space, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He has set his glory above it all. God has set his glory, the, the source and the center of all of that, beyond all of that. It's like the glory of the universe, the gravitational heaviness of the universe, the source, the fountainhead of the universe. God himself, his glory is flowing to and through all of these derivatively glorious things. In David's mind, the sun is a glorious source of light and of warmth, but it receives its light and its warmth from God who is lighter and warmer. And not only in the wonder of the heavens, the glory of God's name above, but all the way down on the land into the weakest and the most vulnerable. So first we've thought through the glory of God's name kind of as a title for the rest of this psalm, but now secondly, the glory of God's image now below. The glory of God's image. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, is that true? Is that true? Like, if Jerusalem were being attacked by enemies, could David just send out a troop of infants? And they would just, like, babble their way into persuading their enemies to stand down? Well, no, not yet. 
But what David is reflecting on is the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. That when the feeblest and the most vulnerable take the praises of the mighty and glorious God of heaven and earth upon their lips, they who appear to be weak are actually strong. That those, they may even die in what seems to be senseless humiliation. They are actually living in glory. After all, thinking through this verse, how Jesus even takes it upon himself. After he's cleansed the temple in Matthew 21, the blind and the lame... The weak and the vulnerable, they are coming to him to be healed. And children, the weak and the ignorable, are in the temple crying out, Hosanna, glory to God, the son of David. Children are praising Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's kingly promises. And the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they say, are you hearing this? Are you going to make them stop this kind of blasphemy? And Jesus essentially responds with, haven't you guys ever read Psalm 8? Out of the mouth of babies. The weak and the vulnerable sometimes see more clearly than those who look like they've got all the power. Appearance and status doesn't necessarily correspond with wisdom and with power and with glory, which is exactly what David is considering back in verse 3 and 4 of Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, if you are an ancient, pre-modern human without images beamed back to you on your computer screen from the Hubble telescope, shoot, like even if you don't have a $30 telescope from Walmart, and you look up at the sky, the night sky, and you think what? Glory. Like seriously, like we are so inoculated against the night skies. Not only because we now live inside, and when the sun goes down, we go inside, and we just go straight to Netflix. But not only that, but we live in the city, and just because of the city lights, we can't see very many stars. Now, kids, your, your summer homework assignment is to persuade your parents to let you stay up late at least once this summer, perhaps even persuade them to drive you outside of town, and just to lie down on the ground and stare at the stars in silence. Why? Well, because if you were an ancient person, you look up at the night sky, and what do you do? You worship. Not necessarily in the same way that David and Israel is worshiping God as God has revealed them to be, but it's not a coincidence of history that nearly every ancient culture worshiped the gods of the sky. You might find a corresponding poem from Psalm 8 in nearly every other culture, that when I look at the heavens, the moon and the stars, I worship them. The skies are glorious. The skies provide life. They provide light and warmth and water and navigation and movements, expected movements of order and of cycles. If anything in this universe is glorious, it is above. So why in the world, asks David, why in the world are you mindful of man that you care for humanity? It's astounding. A few months ago, a popular atheistic Twitter feed posted what seemed to be a very smart and incisive dig against Christianity. They wrote, Christianity, colon, the belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, one light year is approximately 6 trillion miles, 
consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. To which I saw many Christians responding with, isn't it amazing? Unbelievable. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. What is man that you are mindful of him? Amen. The vastness of the universe and the glory of the heavens rightly puts humanity in our very small and cosmically insignificant place. While some humans might be relatively strong or fast, like put the, put the strongest triathlete in the world and just throw that person into space for a couple of seconds and they're dead like that. Put Usain Bolt in a race against a meteorite. That's stupid. Put the prettiest Instagram models. Put them and compare them to the images that daily come back from the Hubble telescope. And just compare them. And if you're not convinced yet, we'll just go back 20 years from now and take a look at the models then. Check back in with, the, with a barred spiral galaxy in like 100,000 years though, and it will still take your breath away. But the overwhelming majority of humanity, the overwhelming majority of us, we're not particularly attractive. We're not particularly strong or fast or athletic. We're not particularly brilliant or intelligent. Like, sure, some of you are all of those things, but there's probably not going to be any books written about us and our accomplishments and our traits. To bring back Ecclesiastes from a few years ago, Within a hundred years from now, likely no one on earth is going to remember your name. You don't believe me? Just think about how many of your eight great-grandparents, how many of their first names that you know. Maybe none. No one will remember you. You are just one of 7.8 billion people alive today and one of tens of billions of people who have come before us. We, you, are nothing. So there is no better cure for the disease of pride than to lie down under the stars and stare in silence. And yet, what we sang from Psalm 36 is also reality, that your steadfast love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Not only is God mindful of you, he knows your name and the number of hairs upon your head. But even more than that, verse 5, you have made him, humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Humanity is lower. He's under the heavenly beings, under the sun, the moon, and the stars. And yet it is humanity who is crowned with glory and with honor. We might think that God would give his glory and delegate, delegate his governing sub-rule to the stars, but instead he has given it to humanity, to us, to the weak and the vulnerable, to the unattractive and to the fickle, to the here one day and gone the next day humans that we are, to sinful and rebellious humanity, to a humanity who is just but a vapor, who are made from the dirt and return to the dirt. He has given his glory and honor to dirtbags. 
Appearance, though, doesn't correspond with reality. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so, reflecting on creation in Genesis 1 and 2, David then goes on to think about just how nutso it is that God has given and given his delegated rule on earth to humanity to be his image bearers. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. All of it from top to bottom. Humanity receives a God-given delegated subrule over creation. So, does that mean that he gives us creation that we might use, consume, and destroy in any way that we see fit? Anything that we want? No. In a Genesis 1 and 2 way, he has given us creation to work and to keep, to cultivate and produce not only families and food, but to produce societal good and God-reflecting beauty, to produce peace and flourishing life. But God has given dominion under humanity's feet. After all, one of my favorite stories comes from an 80-year-old uh, retired U.S. park ranger who used to help us with the, the youth ministry over at Desert Springs uh, many years ago when he was way up in the Rockies and he was walking down a path. He, he stumbled upon a giant grizzly bear who then stood up and confronted Ranger Tom. And Tom got real big and said, in the name of Adam, God has given me dominion over you. Depart. And the bear went back down and walked away. Now, I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, but perhaps that's the point. That the world that God has created is not the way that it was intended. Or the way that God has, the way that we find ourselves in this world as this created world is not the way that God has intended it to be. That sometimes the bears don't depart. That sometimes there is violence and injustice outside of the garden. That humanity has rejected its role as the sub-ruling caretakers of this world. We haven't extended justice and peace and flourishing friendship with God, but we have instead extended violence and war and rebellion against God. And so in this world outside the garden, the world under the curse is not the way that it was intended to be. And not just at powerful and national levels. Like Adam before us, we, take, we have taken what we think is good and wise, and we have rejected what God has given us to be good and wise. We're persuaded that God is somehow stingy and withholding of good. And so we reach out and we take what we are convinced will give us meaning and will actually satisfy. So we reach and we take for accolades and for power. We want comfort or just to be left alone. We want raises and more stuff. We want fun experiences and sexual adventure. We want to be entertained. None of these things are bad when they are received as gifts from God, but all of them are bad when they are worshipped as better than God. All of us. There is none who is righteous, not one. 
worship all of these idols as better and more satisfying than life with God from Adam to today, from our great-great-great-grandparents of the past to the current state of our own heart to the desires of our children and of future generations. Left to ourselves, we actually don't want to bear God's name and his image. We'd rather put our fingers in our ears and just live as if God didn't exist, that we were the gravitational center of the universe. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, the gravitational center of the universe has come to us. Psalm 8 becomes one of the New Testament writer's favorite psalms. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is thinking about Jesus who has become a second Adam. That through the first Adam, sin entered and infected us all. But through a second Adam, life and healing will come to those who believe. For those who would bank their lives on an empty tomb. Who would say, I am a hopeless mess without you. I need your grace and I need your mercy. I need your life and I need your forgiveness. And the substitutionary life and death of Jesus and the power of his resurrection will not only bring peace with God and resurrection life for the future, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this second Adam must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then quoting straight from Psalm 8 verse 6, Paul says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. What was intended to be true for Adam and is still somewhat true for David in his kingly rule over Israel and is even still somewhat true for us will then finally and fully be all the way true at the culmination of all things, at the return of the king, the full reign and rule of Jesus. And so what places, what areas of your life has God given his delegated sub-rule for you to extend the grace and love of the kingdom in? Are you a manager in your office? Are you a parent in your home? Even if you aren't in a place of authority, are you living in a neighborhood? Are you living in a city in which you can cultivate greater societal flourishing and peace? Do you even own a car or do you have a bedroom that you could care for in a better and more intentional way that could more intentionally reflect the ordered glory of God in the universe? And yet as we wait, and since things sure don't look like all things are under the subjection of the good rule of King Jesus, the author of the letter of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 uses Psalm 8 at length to offer us hope the truthfulness and the reality of the resurrection comes to us as a guarantor, as a down payment of Jesus' good, full rule in this world and in our hearts, the already and not yet of his kingdom. And through his suffering, even through our Psalm 3 through 7 songs and prayers of lament, of suffering and repentance, Hebrews 2.10 then is also true in that Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. The Son of God, the true image of God who reigns and rules at the right hand of God the Father now welcomes and restores former, former rebels 
these newly adopted sons and daughters into the thrilling life of the triune God to finally reign and rule the world and rule and reign our own hearts in love and in contented joy. But this love and this contented joy doesn't come by just knowing and recognizing the name of Jesus, just knowing some things about him, perhaps even not just listening to podcasts or reading books about him. The question then for us becomes, have we taken on the name of Christ? Do we actually know him? Are you growing deeper in your knowledge and in your love and in your intimacy with our good King Jesus? Let us fix our eyes upon him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then back to Psalm 8. David bookends the psalm again. The same way he began the psalm, he ends it in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The name of God. His reputation, his renown, his glory. Already, but not yet. Reflecting on all of this, in Philippians 2, Paul then tells the Philippian church to have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Appearance and status doesn't always correspond with wisdom and with power and with glory. But being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Maybe so. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are sorry for the ways in which we have loved and we have worshipped things more than you. That we have valued ourselves more than our neighbor. Forgive us. And Holy Spirit, transform us. Cause us to depend upon your presence and your work in our lives even more. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make your name known and revered and loved, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Christ our King, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.